All right. Well, welcome back, guys. This is obviously the week four talking about eating struggles, eating disorders. And I almost did everything I could not to put the words eating and disorder in this title uh, for a couple reasons. Number one, in our Nutrition Coaching Global Mastermind this week, where we had a guest host who is a licensed mental health therapist, he is of the ilk that uh, you know, we, we just don't necessarily, you know, gain anything from labeling people with disorders, particularly because a lot of these things are continuums. We can display some characteristics we, uh, of a quote disorder. We can, we can struggle at different times. I constantly bring up state versus trait. So, there are different times and life circumstances that, that bring up a struggle in a bigger way than other times. And you would never label those as a mental health illness or a disorder, but just real life, like things impact us differently at different times. And this is, this is absolutely in that same vein where I think, I, at least I hoped I explained that anybody who really seems to have their shit together and they can do everything really, really well, they will still have times when they struggle. And it may be a single type of trigger. It may be a certain context. It may be something that hits them out of the blue, just to stress, lack of sleep. So there's a lot that goes into the physiology. Yet, when it comes to the treatment of eating disorders, as I was preparing for our mastermind earlier in this week, I ran across this particular article, or I would, it's a position paper or a literature review that, that outlines something of which I was unaware, which is the mental health community only at this point as, as just a kind of a, a classic movement only treats eating disorders from a very psych first psychological cognitive viewpoint. Uh, and it, it's just not that effective. So there is a new a push and, and what could become a, a bit of a new field of study or, or category of study within cognitive behavioral therapy that really addresses things a little bit more systematically, a little bit more of a blended approach between the psychology, the physiology, which you guys know I zero in on always almost as a default, and the behavior. And behavior is almost kind of that link between psych or cognition and the physiology. So, so when you hear me or anybody in this, this group that, that we review this position paper of, when you hear these words, disordered eating or eating disorders, think in terms of just those behaviors. I don't have to necessarily have an eating disorder or be labeled as such to exhibit those behaviors once in a while. And, and, and sometimes eating disorders are labeled just as eating too rigidly. You know, for somebody who says, no, I eat very carefully. I'm a healthy eater. I track macros. Just the fact that you do that, some psychologists would say you have an eating disorder. So we're going to get into some of that, and I'm going to try and pick those things apart. But the main focus of today is to look at all challenges, all behavioral pushbacks that we may feel in terms of trying to eat well, trying to change body composition and improve our health. And where is this really coming from? How is it best addressed? Whether you engage with a licensed mental health therapist or you're just working through your own process, 
you know, what are these things that we may be contending with and, and how do we do that to our best effect? And, and this, by the way, is going to be much more of a narrative. I, I really hope we have a lot of time to discuss this at the end because this is not a big qualitative study to pick apart and talk about methodology and, and so forth. It's, it's really, as I said, a position paper. So a um, couple of different groups out of, let's see, it was uh, Oxford and then in California, uh, looking again, this published in, in Frontiers, I think it's called Frontier Psychology. Um, but they, they, they do cite quite a few studies, especially as they do a literature review of the cognitive behavioral therapy approach. But, but keep in mind that this, this phrase, dynamic systems model, dynamic systems model. They're going to come back to you know, what they mean by that, because it's a, it's a term that they're coining to, to put together for this, this use, the, the etiology or the treatment of eating disorders. But I think you're going to see how this fits a lot of things in many, many ways that we, we discuss. So hang with me for a couple of these narrations because um, they, they can get lengthy, but I want to point out some things right from their perspective. Mainstream forms of psychiatric talk therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy do not reliably generate lasting recovery for eating disorders. We discuss widespread assumptions regarding the nature of eating disorders as fundamentally psychological disorders and highlight the problems that underlie these notions as well as related practical problems in the implementation of mainstream treatments. We then offer a theoretical and practical alternative, a dynamic systems model of eating disorders in which behavioral interventions are foregrounded as powerful mediators between the psychological and physical states. So I think this was the very first statement of their position paper. So what they're saying is, is just psychotherapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, that's obviously a, a well-founded approach to anything. I, I think that's probably the most popular and best way we all even understand therapy is cognitive being the brain, what's happening in the brain, behavior, how do we affect that through our behavior and vice versa. So it, it makes sense that most therapists consider themselves cognitive behavioral therapists because as they would describe themselves, that's where you do real work. In the classic models of psych, psychoanalytics is just trying to uncover things, you know, sitting on the couch with, with Sigmund Freud talking about what your mother did to you or didn't do for you when you were a child and you have daddy issues. And so this is, this is how you feel and think. And that's useful. I mean, that's, that has its place. Then you have the, the humanistic or more naturalistic model, which is it's all organic. And this is what's happening in the body. Very biological. A lot of people ignore that when it comes to psychology and then in the middle is cognitive behavioral therapy, which, you know, there has to be some investigative cognitive work, but the key is work. We're going to do things. You're, we're going to dig in deep and we have to, we have to make sure we're addressing some things that, that, you, that you are going to do. Even with that model though, as these guys point out, uh, it's still almost every therapist leans toward the cognitive side. They treat it as a psychological disorder. And, and these guys really have an issue with that. Number one, just calling it a disorder. And number two, treating it from just a psych perspective. So anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating disorder, which are the, the big three, and other eating disorders are often considered to be psychological disorders with physical symptoms. The mind comes first perspective is traditionally associated with a psychoanalytic tradition. 
The perspective is also deeply rooted in folk psychology of mental illness, which often involves psychoanalyzing explanations of states and behaviors based on a person's life history, all the things I just said, uh, perhaps in part because the psychology first way of thinking is so instinctive, it's prevalent even in the forms of treatment for eating disorders that, that reject many psychoanalytical principles, most notably cognitive behavioral therapy. So a couple more of these things, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get into uh, some of the meat of what we're talking about. When CB cognitive behavioral therapy was initially used for the treatment of eating disorders, it had a clear behavioral focus. So its beginning was to make change. Um, however, that emphasis soon gave way to examining primarily the cognitive causes and maintaining factors of eating disorders. I think they, they even get into this a little bit more. The cognitive before behavioral practice goes directly against treatment guidelines for eating disorders, which often encourage a behavioral focus designed to affect physical rehabilitation, especially at the start of the treatments. So then they go into, um, you know, some of their original writings and the goals of nutrition rehabilitation for serious underweight patients are to restore weight, normalize eating patterns, achieve normal perceptions of hunger and satiety, and to correct biological and psychological uh, sequelae of nutrition. So in the beginning, when people first started treating this, this these authors say we, we, we were heading down the right track, and then it just became almost a little sexy to intellectualize it. And they talk later on about something called uh, therapist drift, which is in cognitive behavioral therapy, because you're asking somebody to do some real work and it's very sequential incremental, and you're meeting with this person maybe once a week, twice a week, maybe you're decreasing visits and so forth. It, it's hard to gain that traction, to keep track of what's happening. And so it's easier to just drift away from the hard work and then kind of slip back into just that psychoanalytic model. And these guys, I don't think, as a matter of fact, I think you'll see that they clearly state we are not against cognitive behavioral therapy as an understanding for eating challenges, eating disorders. It's that we've forgotten the behavioral part and the fact that that behavioral part is heavily rooted in the physiological. And so they're trying to bring it back to that as a, as a treatment model. So clinical consensus suggests that psychotherapy can be helpful for patients with anorexia once their, once their malnutrition has been corrected and they have begun losing, begun gaining weight. The recommendations for BN uh, bulimia also emphasize the importance of early behavioral normalization around binge and purge habits. This is advice is striking for originating in a psychiatric setting, but it's even more striking. These guidelines are not widely followed. The idea that psychologically focused therapy should precede eating treatment because the psychological problems are the original cause and or primarily and or the primary maintaining factor for the disorder. So they, they contend that there should almost be a reversal of what you do instead of psych first. And once you, quote, get somebody's head straight, all the behaviors will naturally happen they're saying, no, we, we have to really focus on the physiology. We have to, you know, what happened to teaching people about nutrition? What happened to making sure they even have the understanding to gain physiological stability? If we do that first that, and, and relieve that, that physical pressure of what's happening with, with some of these 
these challenges, then the psych component comes in and is much, much more effective. So you know how we always say it's not either or, it's when and how. Uh, that's that's the whole contention here. And that's why I put that little moniker at the top, you know, cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, which which is feeding which the, the cognition or the behavior back and forth. So I'm going to get into now some of, of the comparative things that they've done, some of the some of the studies that they have have looked at a review of placebo trials, including a meta analysis show cognitive behavioral therapy, specialized treatments confer no advantage over comparator placebo interventions. So in, in five actually large, well-known studies, they, they said, you know, when you actually run the data, when you look at the stats, a placebo is just as good as, as cognitive behavioral therapy. And I'll, I'll show you some of these numbers and, and you'll, see, you'll see why. And the thing is, uh, regarding the above, instead of drawing the obvious conclusion from their findings, especially in this big meta-analysis they refer to, that more specialized targeting of psychological symptoms yields no benefit, they instead conclude that they should even dig in deeper on the psych. So we're leading with psychology, we're leading with just you know, psychoanalytics, and that's failing miserably, so let's do more of that. And these authors said, you know, that's eh, not going to work. You're, you're, you're looking at the wrong end of the horse here. So what they said is it needs to be, no well, first of all, this, these are my words. It needs to be noted that in the discourse of this paper that we're reviewing today, the authors often describe behaviors such as seeking out recipes, restaurant reviews, and food-related materials. The fact that you get out your phone and you look up information on food, spending a long time shopping because you're looking at labels, delaying one's eating. Like we've talked about, like, hey, I got that initial little pang of hunger. I think I'm going to wait 30 or 60 minutes. Weighing one's food, weighing oneself, checking and rechecking nutrition information are pathological. They said, you know, these things are noted in the literature. If anybody is doing this, they have an eating disorder. And these researchers said, no, they don't. These are potential indications and they can be but only if they intensify the psychological salience distortion while also exacerbating the physiological aspects of malnutrition. So one of the things we're gonna, we're gonna talk about is, is some of the differences and the similarities of anorexia, binge eating disorder, and bulimia. They, they have impact on the same physiological systems in our body, but often very differently, such as anorexia is just willful starvation. I mean, people who go, I, I, I am not a clinical psychologist. I should, probably should have said that at the very beginning. Um, all of my background, you know, for the first 20 or so years of my career, all in the physical and health sciences, only in the last 10 years through three different master's degrees, have I started getting into personality psychology and social psychology and, and even neuro and cognitive psychology but I'm absolutely not a licensed mental health therapist. I've never treated anybody for an eating disorder. Not my thing. We are reading this paper for the, the informational value, especially within my wheelhouse, which is as a health scientist. I'm looking at this paper as a, like, finally, like somebody's talking about the physiological aspects of this because they are many and we know 
the physiological, biological things that are happening due to intentional weight loss or any kind of calorie restriction, any kind of structural component that you're using to try and improve your health, those are going to cause physical change and that physical change impacts our mental state. Just like we, I, I often quote studies that show that ketogenic dieting leads to, as, as a nutrition methodology, leads to the greatest amount of binge eating disorder. It is the least sustainable. Why is that? Ketogenic dieting is not a psychotherapy model. It's not a way of thinking. It's a way of eating that causes physical disruption that then causes you to engage in what becomes an eating disorder, which then starts creating this cognitive dissonance in your brain. So now you're creating a mental challenge or even a disordered, distorted, you know, eating pattern from something that was purely physical. And that's where these researchers are saying, you know, why, why is nobody talking about this? Why are psychotherapists the only ones treating this instead of getting an entire team together, you know, who are addressing this. And, and I will say, even in this, because it's a long um, literature review, they even talk about, you know, the, the, the problems ethically, as well as biologically and psychologically with sometimes when somebody is hospitalized for anorexia, you know, they put a feeding tube in somebody and they're forcing them. I mean, they're, you know, against their will. And, and again, you know, I understand some things need to be done to save a life, but do you think that's helpful psychologically? Like, like a lot of time, and I have worked with some eating disordered clients who have had these inpatient experiences and they do like, you have to go eat together and they make you eat grilled cheese sandwiches and drink whole milk and eat cookies. And, and it's, it's completely against some people's wills. And so they said, unfortunately, in this psych model, you know, they they will often jump all the way through addressing behavior or educational components, things that the client or the patient could do on their own because of their physiological knowledge. And they strip away all autonomy and they think they're doing something good. And so they go from one extreme, that psych model to an almost indentured, you know, inpatient type situation. And they're missing all of the things in the middle from, you know, kind of both ends of, I, I would say the behavior part and the physiology part are the two steps toward the middle. So again, I, I just, I can't applaud these researchers enough for even picking out these exact behaviors like weighing yourself, which is in the nutrition, or the, the national you know, weight loss registry, one of the top three indications of people who are successful long-term dieters who have successfully improved their health um, is that they weigh themselves and that they track their food, which again, some, some um, therapists would call an eating disorder. So again, it's not, it's not the act, but it does put you on the precipice. I, I understand completely that when you get people hyper-focused on some of these things, there can be a problem. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to one of my discussion points now before, you know, I, I wrap this up. If, if just on this one point, <clears throat> if, um, if Kevin Brunacini, you know, decided to start playing bass when he was, let's say, 15 years old, and all of a sudden he's looking up playing bass information on his phone 
and he's spending time in music stores and he's got that that instrument in his hand three times a day does he have a guitar disorder you know is that a does he need therapy um anytime we we have an interest in something it, it absorbs some of our our time and our psychological space you know again as these researchers are saying that's not indicative of an issue and maybe even as they will contend maybe we actually need that so the therapist that i had on our on our nutrition coaching global mastermind this week at the very very end when we were talking about that, I kind of wanted to get his feelings on, you know, what if somebody's truly in crisis? Like we're a coach, we're a personal nutrition coach, a, a fitness professional, we're not licensed mental health therapists. What if somebody is really in a bad place? What, what do we do with that? And he said, I know, Joe, you are concerned with overreaching. You're concerned with scope of practice. You want to make sure that, that, coaches aren't doing things they shouldn't. He said, I think you guys need more of a role. People do need proper education. People do need support. People need connection. People need to be heard and understood. And he said, if, if people, if coaches on your side were better at that, a lot of these things that may get called, um, you know, eating disorders may never be, you know, you, you just kind of work through that. And somebody who was close to the edge may never go over. And so it's, it, it's not that intentional weight loss and focusing on these kinds of things cause or perpetuate eating disorders. There is a lot of thought and evidence that they prevent. So let's, let's, Go a little bit further and see what these guys think. In this paper, we present the hypothesis that effectively treating eating is the key to treating eating disorders. Listen to that. Treating eating, the act of eating, focusing on that, is the key to treating eating disorders effectively. That behavior must be restored to the center of eating disorder treatment and research. We also propose, however, that the most meaningful model for both understanding and treating eating disorders is a dynamical systems model in which the interconnections between mind, body, and behavior are understood as structurally integral to the whole. Put simply, the eating has to be treated, but what shapes and is shaped by the eating cannot be ignored. Um, so, uh, you know, again, I did not know this controversy existed in the psychological treatment of eating disorders. Uh, but as I stumbled into it this week, I sure am glad that there is this movement toward looking at the physiology. Patients with eating disorders have also been found to have problematic personality traits, such as perfectionism, neuroticism, obsessionality, negative emotionality, harm avoidance, low self-directedness, low cooperativeness, avoidant personality disorder, high constraint, high persistence, low novelty seeking, high impulsivity, sensation seeking, and borderline personality disorder. Now, of course, how many times have we talked about personality psychology and how that plays into everything we do? The same person given the same context doesn't have the same result. The disordered eating behavior seems like one more comorbid symptom of a complex psychological disorder. So just like my friend, therapist Jeff Stuckey noted in our mastermind this week, he said the greatest thing you can do is have a calm confidence and just a, a connectedness with these, the, these clients. And whether they have had an eating disorder history 
or they just maybe feel like they're getting to that, or even you suspect they may be, you know, I, I have to agree. You know, there are just some people who have had, because of their personality types have a little bit more pull in one direction. So the person who's very, very anxious, I mean, pick some of these things out, you know, negative emotionality, neuroticism, obsession, you know, those are the ones you can see who lack, who lock into nutrition. And as we've mentioned before, they start looking at every single day as a win or a loss. I was perfect on my macros or I wasn't, and that's going to dictate how good I feel. Then they get into an emotional tailspin and, and we can layer these extra burdens on. So a, as these researchers are very careful to do, they're going to they're going to make the case like a prosecutor versus a defendant for biology first, behavior first, physiology first, but they're not going to say in place of cognition, in place of personality psychology. Like that's necessary. We'll get there. That's second. You know, we need to understand that, but we have to work on the eating first to stabilize the physiology and then only when we have the best physiological environment and we get all of those biological stressors out of the way, then the, the more cognitive therapeutic model will have an effect. So I'm almost getting to the end of some of these narrations and then, then we'll, we'll have some stuff that's easier to grasp. But acknowledging the significance of these psychological factors is quite different than claiming that the, quote, real and, quote, underlying problem is a psychological one. For example, at a level of enduring traits, and that treatment must proceed accordingly. As described above, the stronger claim has not yielded effective psychologically based treatments. So that, that's kind of where I, I, you know, would point back to that guitar, um, you know, analogy is just because they have those psychological traits just because they may have those seemingly obsessive tendencies, that still doesn't mean that a psychological solution only is going to have the best impact. So one of the things they did in the very middle of this position paper is they put what they called the five reasons that the psych model has kind of pulled away from the behavioral model. So there is kind of correlation confusion you know, because of like, we just talked about personality psych and these comorbidities and people see that anxiousness and they, they have all these other interplays between different personality traits. And so it looks like, oh, that's what we need to work on. Let's just work on their anxiety. Let's work on this. And if we work on their obsessive or neurotic traits, you know, their eating disorder will just go away. So that's, they say in error, but that's an understandable allure. Confusion of temporal starting points. So, you know, the chicken or the egg. Is it that they have these traits and therefore they stumble into these quagmires of, of disordered behaviors, eating or otherwise? Or is it that if they get near those, then that kind of triggers more anxiety and obsession and so forth? Uh, so again, I mean, that's hard to parse apart and they readily admit that. Tendency toward extremist partisan thinking, that all or nothing, black and white stuff. Intellectual preference over psych. So over or, or for psycho or behavior and physical. So a lot of therapists are drawn to more of the, the cool stuff in the field, you know, that's a little less blue collar getting in and working with, with clients, clinical accommodations of anxiety in both patient and, and clinician. So I mentioned this earlier, that's, that's where that therapist drift comes in. 
Um, it's just it's just a long process. You know, behavioral change takes work, and both the client and the therapist sometimes just you know would rather say, "Oh, it's this mental thing. Let's cure that in a couple of sessions and be done." So these are all the reasons why they contend that this this treatment has has drifted over toward more of the cognitive side and less of the behavioral. But here's where they come in with what they say is the solution. And then I'm going to show you some of the studies that have been done and some of the ways they interpret it and, and why they think this, this has to be the future. And then I definitely want to wrap up by once again, describing the fact that even though they are talking about clinical eating disorders, the fact that these are very, very continuum based. And even if you don't think you have a problem, that you 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 can socially drink and not call yourself an alcoholic, but you can also decide, hey, I've probably been drinking too much. I'm gonna taper that down. Maybe that's not good for my health. Eating disorder or dis distorted thoughts about food, I think, slide a little bit along that spectrum more than we think. So, again, I would not label anybody as having an eating disorder. That's not my my job. But um, you know, I, I think we can all learn from this. So in this dynamic systems model, their first fundamental principle is feedback is key. So this gets into the scientific method and you have to have some kind of a behavioral intervention. And I'm going to include the physiological. I'm gonna, I'm gonna go back through, you're gonna see a list that I put together of some of the things we've learned in these research reviews in the last year and a half that all emanate from the physical and yet they affect our behavior as much as anything. Because anytime you make that change, it's incremental. If I want to improve my insulin sensitivity and blood glucose disposal, which has impact on my hunger, you don't do that because you ate the perfect breakfast. Like I'm starting my diet. I just ate my first good meal. I'm cured. I'm done. All of this stuff is very incremental. Physiology changes. You get feedback from that, both mental and physical. And that's very important. It's, it's important to look at both. The natural ontology versus a core psychopathy. So the natural learning that occurs, the natural, you know, when you, as a coach, when I have a client, they don't know a lot about nutrition. They may or not, may or may not have some disordered tendencies. You see these light bulb moments when they start thinking, oh, wow, that's why I feel that way. Oh, I can control that by eating this way. Oh, if I do this, then this happens. And so there's this, <clears throat> this cognitive um, positive labeling where we're categorizing things that we can control versus having this <coughs> label of a disorder that we think, oh, I have that, quote unquote, I have that disease, I have that disorder. So it's just, it, it's part of, you know, what, what is more curative than just labeling somebody with, with, you know, an issue. The constant feedback and testing, there's the, the whole scientific method, adjusting course, learning some more less of that therapist drift, uh, emphasizes that the, the dynamic systems model emphasizes the normalization of eating behavior instead of body weight. And this is where I wanted to come back to the way some, I, I this has been something that has really confounded me that the, the few times that I've had clients who were actively engaged with a therapist for an eating disorder, and a couple of them have had hospitalization stints um, it's all about the body weight. Like they just, they lock people up in inpatient wards. And as I said, they either put ENT, you know, 
tubes down their, their nose or they force feed them. And, uh, and it's all about, we just have to get your body weight up. We have to get your body weight up. Then you'll be fixed. Then we can turn you loose and then you can maybe work with an outpatient therapist and, and hopefully get on a better track. But it's very focused on those kinds of things, a BMI number instead of your actual long-term, you know, relapse versus, you know, okay state. So again, this is all part of that dynamic systems model, which again, they're not, and I'm not arguing against cognitive behavioral therapy. If you look at all of these things, you, any cognitive behavioral therapist would say, yeah, yeah, I agree. But yet in the treatments of these things, it's, they just don't do it. And so that, that's where they're kind of trying to recenter the, the, the field of therapy. All aspects of eating disorder are not, or eating behavior are not equally important. And I put that direct quote in because I thought it really said a lot. All aspects of eating behavior are not equally important. For example, and this is again, right from there, just right out of a, of a paragraph in their, their position paper, they picked eating rate. They, they really kind of zeroed in. They kept coming back to eating rate as an example of how one simple behavior can change everything. Eating rate is the speed at which you eat your food. You know, do how many times do you chew your food? Do you put your eating utensil down? How many in, in how many minutes do you eat how much food? They actually measure this. There's a device that we're going to get into in a second. And they said, guess what? That's one of the biggest indicators of obesity and eating disorders. You show me on a continuum of people on how fast they eat their food. The fastest end of that continuum are the people with the highest rates of eating disorders. And you know what they, they brought it back down to in the statistical analysis? All of the digestive hormones that we've covered so many times, PYY, ghrelin, glucagon-like peptide. Guess what else? The hypothalamus, how the, how the hypothalamus controls hunger. How, how does the hypothalamus control hunger? By a positive energy balance in the bloodstream, blood sugar starts rising and the hypothalamus shuts off the hunger signal. If you eat too fast, guess what doesn't happen? The hypothalamus stays ratched, ratcheted up and you don't get that signal soon enough. So here again, our therapists saying the physiology matters. If you want to change an eating behavior distortion or an eating disordered behavior, focus on the physiology, focus on the biology. Let's get that in order. Then the cognitive side of the therapy will be much more effective. Uh, they also propose that a unifying hypothesis and a successful implementation is right at our fingertips. So this is where they said anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder. As I said earlier, they all share a lot of the same uh, impact points, but they're, they're, they're often very different in the fact that that willful starvation of anorexia, whereas a bulimic, they will feel overly full. They'll gorge on food. An anorexic is starving themselves. A bulimic is gorging and then purging, um, very similar to you know binge eating disorder. So they're there is a lot of overlap in the systems, um, you know, as they say, uh, the, where was it in there? Uh, I think it's on the next slide. Um, but 
but yet they they're all the same systems that there are different impact points but therefore and this is the same and they even this was their almost um kind of challenge they put a statement after what i'm going to read we know this is a provocative statement but is it really they say because of these different biological and psychological distortions all shared and overlapped by all the the eating disorders Therefore, all eating disorder patients can be effectively treated via a behavioral intervention that normalizes eating rate and satiety signaling. All additional aspects of the intervention should be tailored to support the normalization of eating behavior. So they knew we're basically just throwing the gauntlet down. Every single therapist is going to say we're off our rockers that these guys have now just crossed the line. There's no way you, you can just simply do what a nutrition coach could do. Let's eat, talk about the eating behavior. Let's normalize that. Let's make sure you're not overreaching. Let's make sure that you're not cutting your calories too low. Make sure you're, you're creating the right macronutrient distribution. Make sure you're not over-exercising. Make sure you're getting plenty of sleep. Let's do all those physical and behavioral things. Get all that in order. And then we can work on the psych side. They, they just, they just, they, they put the own, their, their own contention there. We, they said, we know everybody is, this is going to be the piss off statement. So let's address it. And here's how they addressed it. They said, okay, you people who are doing just psych stuff, just talk therapy and cognitive behavioral therapy. Here's all your data. 24% of your patients drop out. The 37% of the remaining patients reach remission only 37%, 30% of those relapse. And that leads to a true recovery rate of 10 to 25%, depending on whether you're even counting the dropouts or not. So that's what you guys are doing. That's, that's, that's your track record using a, a psychoanalytic, just psycho or, or psychological model. You've got about a 10% success rate. And then, um, you know, even after the fact, like you go five years down the road and, and you do some qualifications like that, we'll see the comparison. In a study, and this was very specific, this was that mandometer, which is a device that measures how much food you're eating and how much time in this particular institution where they do eating behavior interventions like this, um, they had a 75% remission rate instead of 10%, and this is out of a massive amount of patients, and 90% of that 75% were still fine uh, you know, at the five-year mark. And, they, and this was the, another quote directly from these researchers. These high standards, this, this kind of amazing contrast have been met by strikingly simple implementations of feedback principles. Just teaching somebody one simple thing, this, all the things I just mentioned that a client or a person may learn over time, they said all we focus on was how fast you're eating, just to show that the physiological satiety hunger mechanism could have this much impact. We just picked one simple behavior and it had what four, five, seven, eight times the, the, the improvement that entire cognitive behavioral therapy interventions have. That's again, as I said, it's strikingly simple um, and, and just you know blew them away. Now in, um, in that particular thing, let me see, I, I think I skipped a point here. Um, 
one of the things that they, th- th- I, w- I will back up for a minute and say that even though that was one behavior, they actually included a rest time. So because they were trying to get people to slow down, they also made them have a, what was it, a warm rest time. I think it was maybe 30 minutes. So in other words, you know, once you ate your meal, which had to, you know, extend 10 or 15 minutes and you eat this amount of food in this amount of time, then you had to go sit down and relax. You had to chill out, let that parasympathetic nervous system allow again, like what's that going to do for you? It's going to let the hypothalamus do its thing. It's going to let blood sugar normalize, blood glucose disposal, insulin sensitivity, all of those physical mechanisms actually do what they're supposed to do instead of saying, okay, I ate really slowly. Now let me get back to my computer and get to work. You know, So they wanted to make sure that was reinforced, that that one simple behavior with what they thought was important. So I, I thought that was, that was pretty intuitive on their part. Um, now here's what they say, and this is, this is going to blow you away. It it blew me away. Here's what they say. Now with all of this analytical information that we're gathering and we're comparing the, the physiological emphasis versus just the psychological emphasis, here's what we think would be great. Here's what we think we really need to study. We think we need to get people together and, 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 decide if there are different regular time points with satiety regulation. In other words, how many meals a day should you eat? Would it make sense to eat more food earlier in the day, late in the day, how you break up your food? Maybe that's a thing. You know what else might be a thing? Dietary intake. What if people actually counted calories? What if people actually cared about the amount of protein, carbs, and fat? Wouldn't that be interesting if people really did that in the real world? And what about exercise habits? What if people had proper exercise? They didn't over-exercise or under-exercise, but maybe, guess what? Those things called catecholamine hormones that are the single biggest driver of weight loss and, and weight maintenance, like maybe we should look at that as psychologists. And body weight changes. Maybe, maybe there's something to the physical and the psychological impact of what you actually weigh. Like again, going back to even the weight control registry and what they've already determined. And then checking things like, you know, if people are controlling those things well or not so well, would there be a difference in eating disorder onset based on how people are controlling their physiology? and these behavioral elements. So guess what guys, psychology is catching up with us as nutrition coaches. They're thinking it may be really cool to know some of these things that we're already doing. So that makes me pretty happy that we as a company are involved in one of the first personal nutrition coaching studies out there with Dr. Eric Helms and University of Auckland and some of his grad students, uh, getting some baseline information about coaching methodologies. Um, it's, it looks to me like it's pretty good timing. If, if the entire field of psychology is, is starting to look at the physiology of eating disorders, then uh, we could have some really good synergy there. So as I was obviously sarcastically, you know, describing those points, come back to the things that you guys know, if you've been here on these Friday research reviews, Think of the glucometer training that we went through and how even kids, 90% of kids were able to 
you know, within a 30 minute, you know, cushion, understand and dictate exactly or, or describe where their blood sugar levels were. Because when they were getting the, the research advice to let's wait until you're empty before you eat again, let's wait until your stomach is empty. Let's wait until you know your body's hungry. Little six-year-old Susie, little nine-year-old Johnny, do you think we could do that? Well, guess what? With seven weeks of glucometer training, they were better at it than adults. Guess in the cognitive behavioral therapy model, classically, as, as described by these researchers, that would be considered giving children an eating disorder. What? You're making them think about food? You're making them think about when they're hungry and when they should eat? Again, they're, they're coming back to the fact that, yeah, that's probably what we should be doing. That interoceptive literacy, knowing what your body needs, how eating times, remember we talked about this just recently, that this eating a little bit, you know, an hour early versus an hour later, your lunchtime could make hundreds of calories worth of difference in ad, ad libitum outcomes. Like you're not even structuring this. We're just saying, eat whatever you want. We're just going to, you, you eat here, you eat here, and we'll see who eats more, who loses more weight. The whole concept of the metabolic switch and metabolic positioning again, just, you know, gets into, you know, can you even effectively lose body fat in a, in a way that's stable? The role and impact of hormones. I talked about catecholamines versus thyroid versus androgens versus dietary hormones like insulin and glucagon. Big impact. That's like the whole ball game. Uh, the mesolimbic system, state versus trait, you know, dopamine. Are you, are you, creating that cognitive resilience. That's great. That's great. That's great. That's what we need. These researchers wouldn't deny that, but it's great until it's not. It's great until that fails. And then if that's all you have, you are, you are destined to fail even harder because now you don't know what to do. You just thought as long as you got those 21 days of habits in place and you, you had that Pavlovian response, then you were fixed, quote unquote. Um, you know, these, these guys in this study or, or this position paper where this is what it was all about is that it's very, very state oriented and you have to understand that state. All the goal pursuit stuff we did, all the brain work that we've talked about, the physiology of hunger, all of that is very, 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 very internal. I've, I've said this a million times with you guys, biology first, biology first, biology first. And so in and of itself, I'm displaying to you right now something that I hope you, you would you would put into your pocket with a grain of salt, which is I have a confirmation bias. I'm a health scientist. I'm very biologically oriented. I'm not opposed to the psychological model. I've spent the last half of my career focusing on that and enjoying learning about that. But I very, very much agree with these researchers. And even as a point of selection bias, I, out of every single piece of information I could have brought you today, I brought you this one because I think it's best. I think it matches my 30 years of experience in my education, but I also understand that somebody could contend and argue a, a different narrative. So always understand that for me. You know, I, I want you to know that I'm presenting something and it's through one person. I would love to know that you're out there, you know, looking at other alternative views and voices. But this one was incredibly compelling. And here's a, here's a final slide. You know, they reduced their entire position down to this one graphic. And without going through every single little loop here, the thing that they did differently was they inserted a physiological 
uh, response to a behavior. And in that little red box, they put eating rate. You could, you could replace that with other eating behaviors that would have a physiological response and run it through that same loop. And just like the slide I showed you of all the research reviews we have, have worked through, you know, you're going to see that it always has impact. You, you just cannot leave the physiology out. And, and I'm going to, I'm going to end with that and bring you guys into the conversation, but that's, that's, uh, that's their whole contention is if, if you have to talk about one thing more than the other, it's got to be biology and physiology first, but that in no means ignores the fact that there's this constant interplay, you know, the physiology and the psychology is that, that binary pinging back and forth, back and forth. They just, they don't happen in a vacuum, but the take home for today is absolutely don't forget about the physiology and that's, uh, I thought, pretty, pretty tremendous. So who's, who's going to jump in first? Who's got some comments, questions, anything? Here we go. Go ahead, Dan. Oh, my, okay. Uh, that was awesome. I was thinking about uh, something the whole time you were talking, and that was neurotransmitter receptors. And then you brought up the hypothalamus, which uh, just cemented the deal for me. It seems to me like... Um, the uh, binge and the anorexic might have the flip side of the same problem uh, biologically in one's mind, meaning that the receptors are overactive or they're underactive. And this is all coming, of course, as you could probably figure out from Sopolsky or biology or environment. And then he even puts another piece in there and says chance. You know, mm -hmm. there's a lot of chance, you know, uh, in there. Uh, so that's that was one thing. The other thing, when you showed that last slide about food um, choice, quantity, and quality, I mean, that's a simple little intervention that has such a powerful effect. And I could say that because, uh, you know, I've been working with you for about two and a half years now. Uh, you know, my wife's come along for the ride, and she is uh, in better shape than she was when I met her 40 years ago. And people come over and they look at her plate. You know, I serve the dinner. I, I plate the food uh, at dinner. And they look at the plate I put in front of Yvonne. They said, it's impossible. How could you be 5'7", 119 pounds, uh, look like this, and eat all of that food? And she just turns around and says, this is six, 700 calories yet. And they're like, no way. It can't be. Dan, do the math. And I do the math. Boom, 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 boom. Now, I've got more calories on my plate, but again, it goes right back to food choice, right? The quantity and the quality. And if people would just make that change, I think you'd get a lot of change in the biology because you, like you said, that rate of, of the speed of which you're eating, you'd get that, you'd be satiated quicker. You'd be less likely to overeat. And now, bam, you feel better. And now psychology, from a psychological point for Point, you feel better, so you want to do it more. It's just it just keeps rolling, keeps rolling, keeps rolling. So I think it's awesome. I think it's spot on as far as you know my my experience. Although I know it's limited in this world, but you know I've been thinking about uh, health and nutrition my whole life, and it just makes sense. It makes good common sense. But remember that it's it's a continuum too. So I think you know if if this group down at one pole 
has never had an eating distortion or disorder, not even a thought or behavior. And then they start dieting, they start trying to improve their health. You know, that, that definitely moves them toward a place where they could, because now they're in a physical deprivation and, and think, you know, that's when biology starts to work against you if you're not careful. So those are the ones, Dan, that yes, by doing all the right things physically, they may never step in that quicksand. And then a lot of other people who may have crossed the 50 yard line and they're struggling. Oh, let me get that physiology stabilized. Wow. The way you're having me eat now or suggesting is easier, better. And they, they also, they just, they can, you know, progress back to a safer spot, but there are some people who have true psychological, you know, complications that you or I may not understand. And a lot of it is prone to those personality traits and trauma, previous trauma. And so in those, and I'm very happy that you're bringing us to, I think the 75% of the continuum that, that we would experience personally as, and professionally. But the researchers are also saying for those people in crisis mode, and they do need psychotherapy and you and I can't even understand the thoughts that are going through their head of a catastrophic nature. You still want to do those things to stabilize them. And then you can work through some of those therapeutic interventions. But yeah, for a, for a just quote, normal dieter, I, I talked about this Wednesday in our live chat and Tuesday in our mastermind that, you know, I was very open that I, I have on very disordered eating behaviors, even though I would never say I have an eating disorder, I'm a normal guy, professional bodybuilder, health scientist, then holy shit, I'm overreaching. I'm trying to eat 1200 calories a day. I'm trying to do three hours of cardio a day. Why am I creating this binge eating cycle? Why am I engaging in this exercise bulimic behavior? And, and again, luckily I was able to say, you know, what, you know, what the fuck are you doing? Like, like, stop that. Like you, you, you're, you're on the wrong track. And I was able to go back to stable physiology, but there are a lot of people who hit that slick spot and they get pulled right into a true disorder. That's the scary part as somebody new into the industry. You know, if I run across somebody like that, you know, what do you do and how do you handle it? I mean, you want to, coach them as far as eating is concerned, but like you just said, certainly not qualified. I'm certainly not qualified to, to get into the uh, psychology part. That's the going show. Mm-hmm. Yep. Awesome. Appreciate that, Dan. Very, very good thoughts. Uh, Lainey, Michelle, Melissa, anybody else have any thoughts? I'll oh. say something quick. So I, it was helpful listening to it because this week, we all know Lainey had to call the ambulance on Wednesday, but um, it was interesting because I'm one that kind of reflects back on things and does different things. And um, I realized, I think one of the things that kept me from probably spiraling back to old habits, which today is two year celebration of choosing to be healthy. But um, I think it was the, I know, kudos. Um, I think it really was, I had created those behavioral habits. So I didn't have to focus on my eating habits and I could focus on the psychological bombarding that was going on in my head because I had created those habits two years ago because those habits weren't there and I didn't know the habits. I wouldn't, I would have gone to the food and would have created that ugly cycle again. So 
I can see firsthand how it's slowly, I learned one discipline and added it here and then I added it here. So when there, and it wasn't a crisis, but when there was, let's say a crisis or a, mm-hmm. oh crap, did that really just happen to me? Um, I was able to go, this is just what I do, you know? And, but I think it was also adding the coming onto the group and going, oh crap, if I do what I thought I was going to do, which wasn't going to eat, I was thinking about all the physical stuff of then I'm going to get super hungry and then I'm going to likely, you know, eat more than I needed to. And I don't know if any of that makes sense, but in my head, it makes a lot of sense that I think the behavioral habits of learning, I need to eat this way, or it's going to create this. I didn't have to think about that in the moment of a, um, a stinking thinking period that I had. And so I think for someone who struggles with stinking thinking, it's helpful to have those habits because I don't have to spend that energy on that part. And I can spend the energy now on the stinking thinking and get things in order. Um, but I think it, it's, it happens, it builds upon itself or it did for me at least. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One of the things that any of those top three behavioral eating disorders that people struggle with there, there is a massive sense of, of catastrophizing. And I mean, in my own personality type, like I, I can get there. And, and that's why I understand, like when you feel that everything just crumbled, like you undid everything, you've ruined everything. I have had also clients who have undergone, you know, therapy. And then all of a sudden that particular context that would have led them to that darkest of places then I hear that, you know, hey, I, I did this mistake. I, I, I overate or I even had a slight binge, but, you know, I'm getting right back on it tomorrow. There, there, there wasn't this, you know, I must go do four hours of cardio and I must now self-flagellate and starve. And you can see, as you said, it's, you know, they've learned some things. You know, there was some definite learning. It took some time. They're more in tune with their behavior and their physiology and so now you just have more of those building blocks in place. And I think that's what gives people the kind of comfort and resilience that you're describing. I don't have to focus on that. I've got so many of those more, you know, foundational steps where they need to be. R- really well said, Lainey. Uh, Kevin, anything you want to throw in there from the nurse practitioner side? It's definitely not surprising. It's really pretty assuring, I will say, that there's that like you said in the uh, in the presentation, it's it's nice that there is this counter argument, if you will, being mentioned because it isn't a silo. It's just you know, look at any other medical condition how it's treated. Uh, to you know, even the best thing for psychological things, it's CBT or we'll just say any type of behavioral modification treatment with medication. So you, it's you can't have. For best success, you need to have both angles, I'll call it, much like hypertension. You can't just give them a pill. That's what people want. That's That often does work, but you still need to treat them what the issue may be, whether it's psychological or if it's nutritional, if weight, et cetera. So it's just logic to me that you, know, you can't just deal with CBT and expect that to treat everything. That'd be nice and easy, perhaps too easy, even though that's not, but you still it's you got to treat the underlying issue or I guess the physiological uh, spectrum in this nature, just like if you have a surgery for weight loss, that's great. That will help. But 
you still have an issue with how to eat and what that means uh, just from a basic principle. So you have to treat, you have to also educate and support someone through that. And that's the hard part after all, that's, it's so fundamental, but uh, I go off on a lot of tangents here, uh, especially with personal de dealing with my own self-diagnosis of orthorexia. Um, but I'll, I'll stop there, but really, really cool stuff to, you know, and, and, and everything I would agree with. It's really just cool. Good. I appreciate that. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate that you also tell your story related to that many, many times in, in these live chats. Um, I, I would say as a take home message, everybody, especially on the playback when you're listening to this and our communication director will, will produce this and we'll post it out there for everybody to see. Um, again, it's not either or, it's how and when. And just the fact that, that a bigger part of the, the psychological community, as Kevin said, is, is putting forth a counterpoint to re-emphasize. And, and yeah, I think this is somewhat gutsy uh, on their part. They do psych, just like we do physiology. And for them to say, we can't treat this the best. Like, we can't do this alone. We've been trying and we've been failing. We need to elicit some help on the physiological actual technique of eating side. And that's not what we do. So that's why they've not gone there. And so that's why I said this timing, I mean, this, this review, I think if I looked at it, I thought it was like 2018 or 19, you know, relatively new. And if this, this grows, uh, you know, you're going to see a place. And this is what with our nutrition coaching, global mastermind and the entire field of personal nutrition coaching, trying to create and carve out some legitimacy you know, that this emphasizes that there really is a need and a place for this as, as a field. So uh, it certainly got me excited and I will, I will dig a little bit even deeper into this because I think it, it has to be a trend that we promote and, and push and, and make people aware of. So everybody who watches this listens later, hope you enjoyed Send me any comments or questions uh, you guys attending. I appreciate that, especially, and you guys have a great rest of your Friday and weekend. We'll see you next week when you can make it.